The Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh. I'd like to finish up this one text before us. But first, let's bow in prayer together as we take this time to seek our Lord, seek His face, and ask for His blessing and His presence to be with us as we look at this wonderful, wonderful verse of Scripture before us. Our Father and our God, we thank You, Lord. We praise You, Lord. We give You glory and honor for You alone are worthy. Lord, as we bow in Your presence, You are the only one that is worthy of glory and honor and praise and power and thanksgiving. Lord, we bless Your holy name now. Lord, as the Puritan prayed, may this be our prayer as well. Take away the infirmities of our unruly desires and hateful lust. Lift the mist and darkness of unbelief. Brighten my soul within the pure light of truth and make it fragrant as the garden of paradise rich with every goodly fruit. Beautiful with heavenly grace, radiant with rays of divine light. Lord, fulfill in me the glory of thy divine offices and be my comforter, my light, my God, my sanctifier, and take of these things of Christ and show them to my soul. Through thee may I Daily learn more of His love, grace, and compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Our Father, Lord Jesus, may this be our great desire and our prayer today. Above all things, that we may glorify You. Blessed Lord, turn our eyes upon Jesus now, the author and finisher of our our faith. Look full, that we may look full in His wonderful face, that things and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And Lord, we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus for Your honor and glory. Amen. In this wonderful Gospel of John, as we have been studying together, we have seen so far in chapter 1, as we've embarked on this journey together, in verse 1 and 2, we have seen the pre-existence of the Word. The pre-existence of the Word. In verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Second, we have seen in verse 3 through 5, the work in the nature of the Word. The work in the nature of the Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or extinguish it. Third, we have seen in verse 6 through 8, the forerunner of the Word. First, the pre-existence of the Word, the work in the nature of the Word, 
In verse 6 through 8, the forerunner of the word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. That all through him might believe. He was not that light. But he was sent to bear witness of that light. Fourth, we have seen in verse 9 through 11, the rejection of the word, the rejection of the word. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. Fifth, we have seen verse in verse 12 and 13. The receiving of the word. The receiving of the word. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And now we come to our text. The sixth outline, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The preexistence of the Word, the work and nature of the Word, the forerunner of the Word, the rejection of the Word, the receiving of the Word, and now the Word became flesh. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has always existed as the Son of God. According to the Word of God, He was with the Father in heaven, but now chose to come into the world and take upon himself a human body. Flesh. This is no doubt the Apostle John's most startling, startling statement so far. It would have amazed both, both the thinkers in both the Jewish and the Greek world to hear such divine revelation. The Word, the Logos, the Logos became flesh. Commentator Tenney put it this way, and I think this is a wonderful comment on this one wonderful great text before us. He says this, the Greeks generally thought of God too low. They thought of Him too low. And to them, John wrote this, the Word became flesh. And he says to ancient people, God's, lowercase g, such as Zeus, and Hermes were simply supermen. They were not equal to the order and reason of the Logos. John told the Greek thinkers, the Logos, you know, made and ordered the universe, actually, and became flesh. He continues this thought on this verse. He says, the Jews generally thought of God too high. Too high. I, I thought, what is he saying here for a moment? You, can you really think of God too high? Let, let's see what he's talking about here. To them, to the Jews, John wrote, the Word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. He says this, ancient Jews had a hard time accepting that the great God revealed in the Old Testament could take on human form. You see where he's going with this. John told the Jewish thinkers the word of God became flesh. He continues, God has come close to you in Jesus Christ. You don't have to struggle to find him. He came to use he came to use some something they go from place to place to try and find God and continue their search, but more commonly, they stay at the place until God draws close to them, and then they quickly move on. But Christ entered into a new dimension of existence through the gateway of human birth and took up his residence among men. End quote. So it was very difficult for the Greeks to think of this great revelation and to believe in this God, Yahweh, the Logos, would become flesh. They thought of Him too low and the Jewish people thought of Him too high that it would be beyond Him to condescend and become flesh. But He did. Scripture says He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. What a great revelation, isn't it? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The idea behind this wonderful phrase is more literally dwelt as a tent among us. He pitched His tent. It was not just as a short appearance or for a short time, but about which there might be some mistake or misunderstanding. No, God Himself actually came to this earth. And by the way, in parentheses, a footnote here. We know what Scripture says. He made this world. He, this, he came to the world in which He made and dwelt among us. He pitched His tent among us, lived here as a man among men. Isn't it amazing? The one who created the worlds and this earth, planet earth, He literally came here and pitched his tent in flesh. He tabernacled among us, as some translations say. He pitched his tent among us. His body was that tent. His body was that tent in which he lived among men for 33 years. 33 years. And again, I quote what the Apostle John, here as he begins the opening of the fourth gospel, but he also brings this uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and of speaking of it, we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, speaking of the other apostles, and which our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard and declared to you 
that you also may have fellowship with us. There's the purpose of it right there. That you may have fellowship with us and truly, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God. They beheld His glory. That word beheld is strong. Actually, it's stronger than the words saw or looked. But John literally tells us that he and other disciples carefully studied the glory of the Word that was made flesh. They studied Him. They saw Him. They handled Him. They heard Him. Literally, physically, the apostles heard and seen and handled Christ. This is, this is glorious. Think of this. The verb here, beheld, that's an important word. Let's look at this word for a moment. They beheld. That word beheld is used in John here as for that matter in the whole New Testament of seeing with the bodily eye. Physically. They saw Him. They beheld Him. It is not used of visions. It's used of they literally saw Him. John is speaking of that glory that was seen in the literal sense. The literal, physical Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. In the Bible, the word glory often means the bright shining light. Let's look at this word glory. This is what we want to really focus on here. It's the glory, the brightness, the shining light which was seen when God was present. When God was present. Glory as the one and only from the Father. Emphasizing that the glory of Jesus, the Word, the Logos, is the same as the glory of God the Father. That same glory that was in God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, has that same equal glory. That same equal glory. Actually, the Greek term here, monogenes, monogenes. That word monogenes in the Greek means one and only. He's unique. There's none like Him. This is why the Bible says, there's none beside me, says the Lord. There is none beside me. It carries the sense of uniqueness. Uniqueness. Special beloved status. Special beloved status. Actually, John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, only begotten Son. That word only begotten means His one and only, His one and only Son. We beheld His glory, says the Apostle John, and this word glory is very significant. That's what we're going to look at most of the time of our worship here as we look into this wonderful text. The glory is significant and it's an important word. And in the Greek, 
The word glory means doxa. Doxa. It's where we get uh, the word worship. Doxa. Doxology. Giving God glory. Meaning a state of being bright and radiant, magnificent, honor, and majestic. Majesty. God's majesty. How, how can we describe with human words this? That's as actually as far as I believe we can go. And beyond that, we do not know because God is so great in His glory. And I want you to think for a second. This is what Lucifer desired to, to have. This is what he desired above all things. He wanted God's glory. And you know the story in Scripture. As he desired that, this created being that God made to worship God, desired lustfully to want God's glory. And God would not uh, share His glory in that sense with another. Now we could share into that glory in a, in, only as children of God, but this archangel wanted all this glory to himself. And Jesus said he was cast out of heaven like lightning. And he fell to the earth. Not by accident. God purposefully cast him here because he's part of God's plan now. It's hard for anyone to see this, but even the evil that has taken place and all the sin. Think of this. Sin really originated in the heart of an archangel that lustfully wanted, desired God's glory. He says, I will be like the Most High. I will raise myself. I will be on the throne. I, I. And God cast him down. You see, this word glory alludes also to the Manifestations of the divine glory in the Old Testament where Yahweh, the Lord's presence, could be found in the tabernacle and in the temple. Now we see this in Exodus chapter 40. Turn with me there to Exodus. Have your Bible ready because we're going we're gonna to move pretty quickly through these verses. But it's very important for us to grasp as the Holy Spirit would help us to see this because the Spirit of God is really the truth uh, spirit of truth that teaches the truth of this great, magnificent God. And we see this in Exodus chapter 40. I'll look at this in verse beginning with 34, verse 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle. That's the glory, the cloud and the glory. We'll see this later on in Isaiah 6. It's the same glory, same cloud, covered the tabernacle of beating, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of beating because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night. 
and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, there you, we see scriptures on the cloud and the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle, the meeting place where God met men and would meet with Moses specifically. Interesting, in verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle meeting because the cloud rested above it. The glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Numbers 14.10, you could turn there, but this is a wonderful verse, but uh, speaks of the consequences of those that sin against the Lord. And all the congregation said to stone them with the stones and Then it says, now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the meeting before all the children of Israel. Once again, we see it in the temple which Solomon had built for the Lord. He didn't build it for himself, did he? He built this temple for the Lord. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter chapter 8. Very significant verse in, in 1 Kings Chapter 8 and um, 10 and 11 specifically, but I'd like to back up a little bit here and let's read to get the context of everything that's being said here. Very insightful verse of Scripture. Um, We see that the ark is brought into the temple in in the first portion of this, and that's what we want to look at. Look at the verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priest and the Levites brought them up. They were specifically appointed. Only the priest and Levites could do this because of those um, furnishings were set apart specifically for worship unto the Lord. Because the Lord is holy. Verse 5, And also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with them were with them because before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered or for multitude. Then the priest brought up in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, and when they came out of the land of Egypt, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. There's that cloud again. What is that? That's the presence of the Lord coming in a cloud. The glory of the Lord. Verse 11, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the clouds. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. And I have surely built you an exalted house. And a place for you to dwell forever. And isn't it amazing there um, in the Old Testament. This 
structure was built specifically for the Lord to dwell in and now God is dwelling in the hearts in the temple of flesh. Because Christ came in flesh, as He came, and He was that glory in flesh, the glory of the Father, and dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, died, buried, rose again, now at the Father's right hand, and now the Spirit of God dwells within us. Believers, isn't that incredible? The heavens of heavens can't even contain them. We also see something else I'd like to speak to you about just for a few minutes when we're talking about the glory of the Lord. It's the Old Testament um, sightings, in a sense, of where we see in Scripture theophany. This is an interesting word. Let's talk about this word, theophany. It means that theophany is the appearance of God that people can discern. And not all appearances of God are recognized by people, by the way, but the term comes from the Greek, theo, meaning God, and the verb, phanity, uh, I think I'm, or phaneo. Uh, it's theophany, meaning to appear to be revealed. Appear to be revealed. Now, since people cannot possibly process God, and I want you to think of this, and we cannot process God's holy nature because He's so holy in His glory, in His formless spirit, but God is spirit. Theophany allows God to make His presence known in a physical way that people can discern through their senses, through our senses. These theophanies also address the problem in the Old Testament. Here's another uh, interesting thought that I'd like to set before you. Is that people cannot withstand direct contact with God, the most holy God, because of His divine presence, because we would disintegrate. We would disintegrate. The Almighty God in His brightness and His majestic glory is so glorious, so majestic and holy if we were to even come right before His manifest presence we would literally turn to ashes instantly. I believe that. And Exodus, Exodus 33, 20 says this, God says to Moses, and we're going to go back to this in application. I like to look at this in application. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. No man shall see me and live. So theophany both protects the people and allows for contact with God. Interesting thought, isn't it? It's, it's that gulf, that gulf that is between the most holy God and the most sinful people. The earliest theophany in human form, aside from the possibility of Genesis 3.8. Let's go to Genesis 3.8. I believe this is a theophany in a sense. God comes 
But this is before sin came into the world. Now this is probably the earliest recording we see that God Himself comes in the Garden of Eden to have fellowship with Adam and his wife. And um, eventually his wife, when she's made out of... Out of um, and she's here. But the fall takes place in this chapter. The serpent is seen in the garden. He lies a deceiving lie to Adam and Eve and eventually comes to Eve first to get to Adam. That was ultimately the goal. But we see here in verse 8 that after their eyes were both, in verse 7, that both of them were open, they knew that they were naked and they uh, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings to hide themselves of their nakedness because now their eyes were open. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, isn't that interesting? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. So God came to fellowship. But here, after sin came in, he already knew this. He, start, he began to ask the question, and the first, the first one he calls is to Adam and said to him, Where are you, Adam? He wanted, though, he wanted Adam to know where he was. Adam did not know where he was spiritually. He was fallen. But God knew where he was. That is a sense of a theophany. That God comes, fellowships. He walked and talked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, there's another appearance that we see in Genesis. A lot of these are in Genesis. Very, very interesting. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, turn a few chapters with me, we see a theophany with Abraham. Abraham, the father of our faith. We see this in verse 1 through 6. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of, the, out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and, you will, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse, I will curse him who curses you and, all, and you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then it says in Abram, this is before he was called Abraham because of the covenant that God makes with him, but here he's Abram. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old and he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, so they came to the land of Canaan. Now, the point I'm trying to say is the Lord said to Abram, I believe there's a theophany here. Now, if you go to Genesis 15, after Abram is called out of the land of the Ur, the Chaldees, 
God makes a covenant with Abram. And then once again in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and an heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Uh, no one, uh, and, and then he says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he's speaking of Isaac, isn't he? And Isaac was a miracle child. They literally, uh, his wife conceived at an old age, around 90 years old. And that's why they actually laughed about it. Now go with me. Let's see that story. Genesis 18. Genesis 18. We see this. The son of promise. God literally, physically came down to visit Abram or Abraham. Then the Lord appeared in verse 1 to him in the terebinth trees of Mamre. And he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Folks, look at that. He's bowing himself to the ground and he's worshiping. And he said, my Lord. He calls him my Lord. Now, one of those men were, was God in, in flesh. This is a theophany. He's able to see him, to handle him, to touch him, but God comes and shields himself in, in, a, in a marvelous way because if he came in his glory, Abraham would have disintegrated. He said, and, 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 and look at what he says. Abram says, if I, Abraham says, and I have now... If, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. He wants to wash his feet. He wants to give tremendous and wonderful hospitality and rest yourselves under the tree. And then he says in verse 5, I will bring a morsel of bread and then you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by in so much as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes. You notice, I'm sure there's an urgency here and wants and desires to get, because he knows this is God, folks, with two angels with him. And Abram ran to the herd and took a tender good calf. He wants to put a, one of the best meals he can together. He gave it to a young man and hastened to prepare it. He was in a hurry, and then he took butter and milk and, and a calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And basically, they had a conversation. And it was basically that conversation was about the son of promise. Isaac was to be born. We also see the Lord appears to Isaac in Genesis 26.2. You can jump to Genesis 26.2. Look at what it said. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell, tell you. So he appears to Abraham. He appears to Isaac. He appears to Jacob. 
Again, he appeared to Isaac again in verse 23 and 24. His next appearance is Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28, 10 through 13. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones that had placed and put at his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie I will give you to you and to your descendants. And your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it goes on. That's the, the covenant that God is bringing to him. And, and, and Jacob makes a vow at Bethel after he sees God. And then he says, in verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Notice with these men that met God, something happened to them. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Because God was there. God Himself was there. And it's interesting also in Acts, you could jump to Acts chapter, um, chapter 7, I believe, comes to mind that a powerful deacon, deacon of the church that preached and was martyred, his name was Stephen. And he brings this up in his message before he was martyred and put to death with stones, by stones. Acts 7, 2 through 4, notice what he says. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Notice the, the scriptures he just preaches and said to him, get out of the country and from your relatives and come to a land which I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there he was with his father. Was, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land into which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even though... Uh, I'm sorry, even enough to set his foot on it. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in the foreign land and that they would bring them into, the bond, into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. God told Abraham that, right? Verse 7, And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. That's Egypt. And said, God, and after that, uh, that they shall come out and serve me in this place. And then verse 8, and then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And you know where he goes with this message. He, he take, takes it through the Bible of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Then he talks about the patriarchs in Egypt. Then he goes to God delivers Israel by Moses. And then he speaks about Israel rebels against God. And then he speaks about God's true tabernacle. And then he talks about Israel resists the Holy Spirit. And then he comes to his application. 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised, verse 51, and heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And then he put, preaches Jesus Christ to them, which of the prophets, which of the prophets did the fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have been become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And listen to this. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in his last words, he said, Look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And even then, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up the ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there. I'm sure this was very instrumental in him being converted. And they stoned Stephen as they was, was calling as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, just like his Lord and Master, he prays in his last words, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Incredible. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, ushered into glory. All that is about the glory of God. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? It's about the glory of God. There's another time in Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with a man. This man is God. None other than God. As a man. Flesh. Appearance of a man. Not quite Jesus as we see in the New Testament. But He comes, you see. We know this, don't we? It's interesting, as I was studying this, Jacob wrestles this man, and, 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 and go, go with me to Hosea chapter 12. I want you to see this. This is very interesting. The prophet brings attention to this in Hosea 12. And, and look at verse... 3 through 5. He took his brethren by the heel of the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, his, he struggled with the angel and prevailed, but it also says the angel of the Lord, but this angel of the Lord is none other than God. He wept and sought favor from him and found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his Memorable, memorable name. In verse 6, So you by the help of your God return. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. And he uses that as a message to speak to Israel. There's another theophany in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, go back to Joshua chapter 5. This is... Incredible here. Joshua chapter 5, look at verse 13 through 
through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite of him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's a good question. <laughs> who, who are you for? Whose side are you on? And so he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, listen to this. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? This, this is none other than the Lord as appearance of a man once again. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. None other, none other than a theophany, right? We also see it in Daniel chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the fourth man in that fiery furnace was none other than the Lord of glory walking in the fire with him. In bodily form. But he hasn't come here yet to take on the flesh. He comes as a man as theophany. The glory of the Lord. So when the Lord Jesus Christ was here on this earth, He veiled His glory, right? In a body, in a body of flesh. How do we know that? Well, first of all, let me point out something here very significant. There are two ways in which His glory was revealed. There's two ways. The first one was... He was revealed in His moral glory. His moral glory. By this we mean that the radiance of His holy, perfect character. Speaking of Christ, there was no flaw in His life. There was no blemish in His life whatsoever. He was the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, as a man full of the Holy Spirit and not one sin. He was sinless. Every virtue was manifested in his life in perfection and in beauty. And everything that he did in word, action, and deed was perfect, folks. This is glorious because when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we not only put our trust on the death, his death on the cross for us, but his life that he represents us, that he is our righteousness. Isn't that glorious? If you want to talk about living the victorious life, that's the way to look to it. Because Christ lived the victorious life for us. But now, yes, we have sanctification to deal with because we still have... We're in this unredeemed flesh where we're saved and we battle the flesh. Right? I do every day. Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul did every day. But... Jesus was perfect in all His ways. He pleased God in everything He did. Everything. Every virtue was manifested in His life in perfection and beauty and balance. Perfect. Then there was the visible, the second thing He revealed was revealed, the sec, was the visible outshining of His glory that burst forth and took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Go with me to Matthew 17. We've gone here before, but it's very significant to see this. Because we're talking about the glory of God. And Peter, 
as we just went through Second Peter, Peter refers to this as a, it's really a, a, a very important place where he takes from speaking that we have beheld his glory. We saw the living Christ. And in, Jesus was transfigured on the mount. Verse 1 of chapter 17, after, these, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, I want you to picture this. And he was transfigured. That word transfigured is interesting because it means that his glory is like bursted forth out from his flesh before them. His face shone like the sun. Listen to that. Just like we see him in Revelation, right? His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as a light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Great idea, Peter, but not so great. While he was still speaking, right in the middle of his conversation, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Peter was so distracted as a Jew to Elijah, the prophet of fire, and he got uh, distracted with Moses, the, uh, the great prophet, and Jesus was in the middle, and it's almost like he's getting caught up in all these ideas, and the Father just rebukes him. Hear my son. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's where we need to be, folks. That we would not be looking at Elijah, would not be looking at John the Baptist, would not be looking at Moses, but Jesus only. Amen? Jesus only. Only Christ. And here they were, I mean, literally afraid. They fell on their faces after they heard the voice of God. Just like the children of Israel when they heard God's voice speak in thunder and in lightnings. And they said, they they begged Moses, Moses, you speak to us or we will die by hearing God. His glory, folks. That's what we're talking about here. His glory. These three apostles were given a great privilege, were they not? They, they had the privilege of seeing the preview of the splendor, the majesty which the Lord Jesus will have when He comes back to earth and to reign forever and ever and the power and glory with the holy angels when He comes back. And so when John said we beheld His glory, he was referring primarily to the perfect moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A class all by Himself, the Son of the living God. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. That's what the text says. He's full of grace and truth. Spurgeon said this about that wonderful verse. He said, Beloved, notice here that both of these qualities in our Lord are at full. He is full of grace. Who could be more so, Spurgeon said? In the person of Jesus Christ, the immeasurable grace of God is treasured up. The great preacher G. Campbell Morgan said of this verse, 
these, these two ideas should hold our minds and direct our lives that God is grace and truth. Not one without the other. Not the other apart from the one. And in His government, there can be no lowering of the simple and severe standard of truth. And there is no departure from the purpose and the passion of grace, said G. Campbell Morgan. Now let me give you an application of all that I've said today. It's very obvious in our time period in which we live, beloved, is tragically the glory of God has departed. Because of the terrible, terrible sins, not of the nation, but the terrible sins of the church. George Whitfield said that God is, God is more angry with the sins of the church than He is the nation. And therefore, judgment, we're right in the middle of judgment. Romans chapter 1, we're there. But that does not leave us without hope, does it? Even though Ichabod is written on most of all the churches in this nation, that does not leave us without hope. Because there can be revival, there can be restoration to God's remnant through repentance. Remember those R's. Repentance brings revival and restoration to the remnant. And I'm talking about true repentance. I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. We're talking about being broken over sin and broken over disobeying God. Broken over... The weight of it. And then not until we see that, the way we have sinned against God, there will not be a turning to God and a turning away from sin. We must be broken, broken over. And Tozer, I like the way he put it, the repentance is literally being broken by God, being wounded by God, like Jacob was when he wrestled him. God touched him and pulled his socket out of place. We need to be wounded by God to get our attention. Brokenness. Well, what about us? What about us? Well, there's great lessons to be learned. I don't know about you, but if you go to Exodus 33, back to what Moses desired, and Moses, he said, show me thy glory. Now, I want you to think for a second. He's, he's, he's not saying, I want your glory. He said, just show it to me. I just want to see your glory. And you see this, in Exodus 33, look at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray. He's praying to the Lord right there, face to face. If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know your that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what God said to him. God didn't say a lot to him, did he? But he said a lot in, those, in that one short sentence. It didn't say it in length, but he said it a lot in, within the short sentence. My presence will be go with you and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. 
For how then will it be known that your people, I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name, personally. And then he said this, Please, listen to Moses, he's desperate. Please, show me your glory. Listen to that request. God said to him, then he said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God was basically saying, it's up to me. I have the right to choose. And in verse 20, he said, Moses, he's saying to him personally, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And The Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, we know that rock's Christ. Amen? That rock is Christ. Because Paul said that. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I shall take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And you know what happened. Moses had the privilege of seeing just the back side of God in a glimpse. He comes off the mountain. He had to put a veil over his face, folks, because of the glory and the reflection of God's glory upon his face. Even the people could not even look upon the face of Moses. He, had, he was probably the, the only one we know that saw God's back. But how about in a vision in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6? We're all familiar with Isaiah 6, but do, we, we may know Isaiah 6, but do we really, really know Isaiah 6 to our hearts? In this closing, I like to say, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on a throne. See, in the midst of judgment, we can say, we see God on the throne, right? And He has not lost any control. High and lifted up, his train and his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two covered his face. With two, uh, He covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried one to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is what? Full of his glory. Notice this in heaven. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. There's the smoke. The cloud. So I said... Woe is me. This is a prophet, a righteous prophet, for I am an undone. I am undone. Undone. I'm destroyed. I'm disintegrated. I am cut off. I'm telling you, if we really got a glimpse of who God is, it will bring us to our faces. And he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips... I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eye, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having 
in his hand a live coal, which he has taken from the tongs from the altar. See, here he is. He feels like he's perishing. He's disintegrating. But God has a remedy. He's going to put a live coal to him. He touches his mouth with it. The most sensitive part of his lips. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. What's he doing? He is purging him to preach the message. And then he says this in verse 8, And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The Trinity there. And then I said, Here am I, send me. And you know the rest of the story. God said, Go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, do not perceive. Make the heart of, their people, the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return to be healed. I love this because God has a remedy even when we come to see His glory and we see our sin and our sinfulness. Lord, I'm so sinful. But He comes and purges and cleanses. And notice it's the fire. It's the, it's the hot coal that does the purifying. You ever wonder why God's going to burn up the earth one day? Because there's a purification in it. He's going to cleanse it from the sin and the stain and the filth. Well, may we desire, like Moses, to see His glory. And may we be like Isaiah, to see the Lord high and lifted up, We don't need a vision like Him. We have the Word of the living God. We don't need dreams. We don't need visions. We have God's Word. That's all we need, right? Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Isaiah 66, you know this. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but... On this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. Who trembles at my word. Lord, burn this to us. May we obey this. May we give glory to Him. Give glory to God. And David, and I close with this. Psalm 85. Verse 4. Restore us, O God, of our salvation. and Cause your anger toward us to cease. Listen to these questions. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? There's three questions right there. And then he says this, Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. And I will hear what God the Lord will speak. And He will speak peace to His people and to His saints and let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. That glory, that glory may dwell in our land. May it be with us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this time of 
worship in your word in this time of worship and singing the praises to you and, and prayer and devotion and, and, and all that you do and hearing your word. Lord, we thank you for you are the God of glory and there's none like unto you and no flesh is going to glory in your presence. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to put your glory on display through this earthen vessel, this vessel that's weak, to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, to forgive others as we see in Stephen's life as he was having the stones take the life out of his very body and usher him to glory, to trust in you, to produce fruit for your glory, to give thanks for your glory, and also may we continue to pray for your glory and to abide in prayer. Lord, revive us again. Revive us again. Restore us, O God. Because You are the God of our salvation. Will You not revive us again, O Lord, that Your people may rejoice in You? Lord, we, our, our prayers with David. Show us Your mercy, Lord. And You have done this. You have, granted, you have granted us Your salvation all in Jesus Christ. And we don't need no one else. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Help us, O oh Lord, to abide in You, to obey You, and to display Your glory before a lost and dying world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.